of all the pillars of modern medicine today. It's hard to overstate the importance of modern medicines, as in prescription drugs. Just in the past few decades, there have been amazing breakthroughs in treatments for chronic conditions, as well as all types of cancers, with greater and greater specificity, adding significant quality of life, often years of life, to and for patients with serious diseases. Anesthesiology now has many more effective drugs at its disposal when patients are undergoing surgery. Or at least we thought all this were immutable facts. Anesthesiology and chemotherapy both are two of the areas being hit hardest by drug shortages. We're going to take a look at the current situation and important ways to respond on this edition of WIHI. Welcome everyone to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We offer this bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via iTunes and on IHI.org. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Well, when things get tough and complicated, it's good to know where to turn for solid information and guidance. We've got three clear-eyed experts with us, not only tracking the daily situation, but also doing what improvers do best, applying all that they know to respond to the situation, or what we know to respond to the situation with patient safety first and foremost as the guiding principle. So to our guests, a familiar name to many of you is Michael Cohen. He's president of the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, a nonprofit healthcare organization that specializes in understanding the causes of medication errors and providing error reduction strategies to multiple stakeholders. Mike is responsible for numerous educational and sense-making publications and online offerings. And for our purposes today, his ongoing work with the Joint Commission, the National Quality Forum, and the Food and Drug Administration put him in a great position to be the right person in the right place at the right time. Joining us by phone is Mike Cohen. Welcome. Oh, hi. How are you, Matt? Very, uh, very good. Where are you joining from today? I wasn't sure. Are you, are you uh, what, what city? Well, I'm still in the office in Horsham, Pennsylvania. Okay, great to have you. Okay, terrific. I'm also excited to welcome Lynn Eschenbacher back to WIHI. Actually, Mike's been with us too, I should say. A clinical pharmacist, Lynn is currently the Assistant Director of Clinical Services at Wake Med Health and Hospitals in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's also the PGY1 Residency Director. Lynn has won numerous awards and actively works with the American Society for Health Systems Pharmacists. And that's an organization that's currently doing a fantastic job tracking the drug shortage situation. Welcome, Lynn, to WIHI. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and share all that I can. Terrific. And joining me in the studio is Frank Federico. He's an executive director of Strategic Partners at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Frank's pharmacy training is foundational for his work in the areas of patient safety, application of reliability principles in healthcare, preventing surgical complications, and improving perinatal care. Frank has also just published um, a wonderful piece with Mike Cohen and Bona Benjamin on drug shortages. That was in the in I should say the September October issue of Health. Healthcare Executive. That article is freely available on IHI.org, and uh, in preparation for today's program, we sent out links uh, to that as well as some other resources. All right, we've got all the people on board. I also want to acknowledge that John Gothier is part of the WIHI team, and he's tweeting. Uh, you can follow his tweets at hashtag IHI. Excuse me, hashtag IHI. I always want to say pound sign, 
And um, I also want to just make a very, very brief comment about slides because in the survey responses to the program, people often ask about slides. So just a couple of things. We don't lean heavily on slides for this audio talk show, and that distinguishes us from uh, webinars and other more didactic programming. We're hoping that listening, conversation, and asking questions can be equally beneficial or perhaps beneficial in a different way. When we do share slides, we do so to illustrate a speaker's remarks or references most of all. Guests on WIHI do not prepare necessarily or provide PowerPoints of their remarks. So when we're putting something on the screen, uh, think of it as augmentation most of all. A reminder that all slides are available when you log off the WebEx and you're offered that option in a little pop-up screen. And if you're just joining by phone, you can email info at IHI.org and you can also get all the materials that we share on the program today. Okay, I guess that's enough housekeeping. Thanks for your patience. Welcome, everybody. I appreciate the interest in the program. Uh, if you know somebody who is hoping to attend, do remind them that they can uh, pick this up as an archived program uh, by tomorrow morning. And we do hope folks will kind of get the word out about the issues. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you um, from the Institute for Safe Medication Practices. I think it's safe to assume that the people who join or are joining this discussion today have a pretty good sense of why we chose this topic. But it never hurts to bring everyone up to speed. So I've given you the task of kind of framing what the problem is, what's going on, and uh, then I'll kind of ask a question or two just to fill that out. So let's start with you. Okay, that sounds fine. I'm glad to do that. Actually, uh, I think everybody knows what a mess this has become. Uh, it really is a very serious issue. cannot be minimized. Uh, we've actually seen an increasing, an ever-increasing number of uh, drug shortages, and some of you may uh, be aware that actually breaking the record. Um, as of the end of last year, we were up to about 211 products that uh, were in short supply. And at the end of August, we were already at 200. And some people are saying it could be as high as uh, 300. And I know a lot of people, uh, you know, they, they ask me, well, what is going on here? You know, we know there's a shortage. We know it's critical drugs, uh, critically necessary drugs. How can it be that here we are in the United States uh, and uh, we don't have a supply of certain cancer drugs and other really critically, critically important medications? And, you know, there's just isn't one reason. You know, there, there have been quality problems that have contributed to this and forced shutdowns of pharmaceutical plants or at least uh, production lines. Sometimes um, in FDA inspections, uh, you know, that have uh, revealed a quality issue and, uh, again, you know, none of the companies are going to move forward under either one of those conditions and uh, provide uh, their product under uh, normal circumstances. So uh, that does shut down the product and uh, product line. And then um, we also have had a lot of consolidation of the uh, pharmaceutical industry in general, uh, brand and generic, in particular generic, because as you know, many of the drugs that are in short supply are uh, or are unavailable are these inexpensive generic products that we've been using for so many years. And uh, that kind of speaks to another one of the reasons, and that is uh, profitability. And I'm afraid to say that uh, that has uh, certainly uh, been the case, and FDA mentioned that recently, that some of the companies uh, just feel that a certain medication that they've been making all along is uh, just not profitable, profitable enough to continue with production, and they replace it with a more profitable uh, production line. And of course, when any of these uh, issues occur, 
um, it, it you know makes the other companies that still um, make these products available uh, also fall into uh, you know a situation where they have a very difficult time meeting meeting demand. So when you go on any of the websites that uh, either FDA or ASHP see that these products uh, frequently are listed as backordered because they're unable to keep up with demand. And another issue is the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredient. We've heard uh, you know that that has been a problem uh, before. We had about percent of the powders made here in the United States. Now it's uh, more like 80% are made in India and China and some of the other countries, and we're importing them. It isn't always so easy for uh, uh, us to be able to, our companies rather, to be able to access these drugs. And then one other reason that I like to talk about, because it seems like this has been addressed over the past year. I don't know of any incidents. And we had a, a situation a couple of years ago where FDA you know, in their process for looking at uh, drugs that were grandfathered before 1938's legislation, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, they were going around to the companies and, and pretty much prioritizing to drugs that had a lot of medication error problems with, like colchicine, for exa- example, or morphine concentrate liquid, and they were asking them to submit a new drug application so that they could, in fact, uh, imp- implement regulatory authority, which they didn't have for drugs that were listed before 1938. That did, in fact, slow down uh, production, and it did force a couple of drug shortages, but FDA has really uh, reversed themselves on that, and they're working very carefully to continue with still, you know, asking people to, uh, uh, or, or working with the companies to make sure that continues. So, Mike, but, I, I don't want to break your flow, but um, just can you sort of uh, jump to kind of what are the concerns from a safety perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the clinical effects of these shortages are serious, too. It certainly compromises or delays medical treatment and procedures. Now, if you've been following the intense media coverage, and by the way, more of that is coming this week, um, the intense media coverage, uh, you know that um, you know certain cancer drugs are not available. And again, it's usually the inexpensive generics. People are having to use alternative therapies that are not part of the typical curative regimens that have been used in the past. But we've seen things like uh, people not being familiar with anesthesia products and anesthesia awareness being an issue for patients where they wake up during uh, surgery. There's, there's all kinds of things like that. And then specific types of medication errors. Again, mostly due to unfamiliarity. Uh, hydromorphone has always been a problem, but we've seen a rise in the number of hydromorphone incidents. That drug is about uh, you know, seven times more potent than morphine, and some folks weren't really familiar with the dosing where they just used morphine at the hospital, and they would continue to order it as if it were morphine, and we saw massive overdoses of the drug, including some deaths. Epinephrine, 1 to 1,000, that ratio expression, that's another one that's uh, resulted in tenfold overdoses where people really intended to give a 1 to 10,000 and uh, weren't able to calculate it properly. They just weren't used to doing it before they used a pre-filled syringe. We've seen many other things. One of the issues that we have seen, too, that people should be aware of is changing concentrations of electrolytes in various databases that drive technologies like CPOE, automated uh, compounders in the IV admixture area. Um, You know, all these different databases, sometimes we're forgetting, you know, that when you use an alternative concentration of an electrolyte because you couldn't get the one you're used to, we're forgetting to make these changes, and we've seen some uh, very large overdoses of drugs as a result of that. And just one other thing, too, I think very interesting, Madge, if I can. The um, 
what we have also seen is um, uh, an increase in the number of uh, pharmacies out there that are doing sterile compounding from active pharmaceutical ingredient because hospitals uh, aren't able to get the drug and they are able to supply it by making it themselves. And sadly, we have had some uh, uh, fatal events as a result of uh, compromises of sterility. So I want to warn everybody out there, uh, be careful uh, which pharmacy you're using. Absolutely, you should expect uh, documentation uh, of their uh, quality control, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, possibly even visit one that uh, you intend to use. Because they're not all uh, up to par, unfortunately, and our oversight just hasn't been there. Many of the pharmacies really aren't visited by FDA. Uh, they're not manufacturing facilities necessarily. And also our state boards of pharmacy you know, across the country aren't up to uh, monitoring for uh, USP Chapter 797. A lot of them don't even regulate. So it's a real it's a real problem that way. All right. So, Mike, I, there's so much going on. Thank you so much. That's a really terrific introductory and kind of overview. And we didn't even touch on some gray market issues, which are definitely uh, fierce and furious as well. And uh, there, too, I had provided. Uh, we, we do have some links to uh, sort of useful resources sources on that. Premier has done that. You have done that, ISMP. And uh, I'm going to hold for the moment on the sort of my follow-up question to you, because I let, let's swing back to that maybe when we get a little bit more on the table, and that's kind of what uh, this, this issue definitely has the attention of Washington, and we can talk about sort of what are some high-level things uh, that may be afoot. And as I, as I referred to earlier, you've been at the table at many of these things. So thank you. We'll be right. We'll uh, swing back your way with some additional questions. And we're talking about drug shortages, and you were just listening to Mike Cohen of the Institute for Safe Medication Practices. Frank, I'm going to turn to you next. Frank Federico from IHI. You know, as Mike started off, he said at some level it's unfathomable what's what's going on. Um, but this is, this didn't just ha start this year as well. And uh, you've you've said very clearly to me and to others, it's just not an excuse though for inaction. And uh, so we got to wrap our arms around this and start to really come up with best practices. So help, help us think through some of that right now. So uh, a couple of things, Madge. Just to be clear that this isn't just a U.S. problem. Yes. And when we published our, our article in the uh, 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 College of Healthcare Executive Journal, uh, we immediately got an email from a colleague in the U.K., David Steed, who right. said, hey, you guys, you know, we're having a similar problem here. And so uh, this is a big issue around the world. And as you said, there are uh, – motions in place. There are people activated and trying to figure out how to solve the problem. But the biggest issue that came to my attention is, especially because of my work in safety, is we have done so much to standardize, to put in place information, to do all the kinds of things that produce safe systems, and suddenly you throw in something like a drug shortage. Now, drug shortages have been around for a long time. From Mike's graph, we can tell it's, it's not a new process. It's just that in the past, it seemed that people dealt with it on a day-to-day -day basis, and they, it wasn't that much of an issue. But as the numbers have grown, as the severity of the impact to patients has become more significant, and as I've talked to organizations around the country, uh, I find that the impact on patient safety and the impact on these well-designed systems is so significant. So as I 
remember from my own experience, from the experience I've heard from others, there are some basic things that have to be done. Uh, clearly, you need to look at what inventory you have on hand, what's being stored, where is it being stored, who else might have some inventory. I think a whole decision of the drug is not available, then what do we do for our patients? Do we have alternate drugs? Um, informing the community, informing the physicians, anybody who's involved as to what's necessary, what kind of changes. When a new drug is introduced, Mike referred to uh, lack of familiarity with the drug. Well, you have to make sure you have the right drug abstract or monograph available so that everybody knows how to dose the drug, what to monitor, what kind of labs are necessary, all key components. And the more we get into technology, the more we have to think about all of the complexity that there is, because we do have to then look at our computerized prescribing system, our automated dispensing cabinets, our smart infusion pumps, or any other technology that involves that piece. When we decided to write the article, um, what struck me was that, as I said, hospitals were making do, and I was very concerned that this wasn't getting up to the senior levels of the organization, that the senior leaders of the organization really needed to understand because every day, every hour that a pharmacist or a technician or a nurse spent chasing down the drugs, trying to find things, meant that those were not dedicated to patient care. And the impact that that could have on patient care was significant. So the article that you referred to is the article that we're really trying to approach the upper leaders of an organization to have them understand that this is a real complex issue. It requires resources, and it can't be done just as part of your regular job. You really need to dedicate time and effort to make sure you continue with the safety in your system and also ensure that you're providing good clinical care. So, Frank, I'm wondering, uh, you, you pretty much probably covered this. Um, I, I, we've provided the link in the chat, and again, if you're only on the phone today and not on the computer, do email us at info at IHI.org, and we'll make sure to get that link to you, and also it is available on the website. I'm wondering, in terms of some of the high-level things that you recommended in the article, um, it's, it's kind of a good sort of checklist, and I think we're going to drill down even a little bit more with uh, Lynn Eschenbacher, but um, are there some sort of a special, special things that that um, people might be wanting to think about uh, even just to sort of kick this off right now. Well, I think the first thing is always understand what supply is available and learning from the manufacturer to the extent that you can, how long will there be a shortage? Because how you react to that will be how you set your plan. If it's going to be a long shortage and there's no end in sight, then you really need to think about what are all the alternate things we need to put in place. The other is uh, to ensure safety. I can't emphasize that enough. To ensure that you have the appropriate information, that you've taken into account some of the things that Mike mentioned earlier, that you're not putting patients at risk with any new drugs that you're adding to the formulary. And I think it, those are the two important ones. Of course, there are many that you have to deal with, but if you haven't done that, then you, you really haven't done anything. Do you feel that the electronic, uh, kind of all the sort of electronic order entry and sort of all the things that have been implemented in many ways to improve safety uh, are, are set up well to kind of uh, incorporate these kinds of adjustments? So they can be. It's only as effective as we are in adjusting those systems when that 
item is no longer available, when the abstract for the monograph of that drug is available when you call up the drug, uh, that you make sure that you go through the automated dispensing machines and ensure that the drug name that appears there actually reflects the concentration that you have in the storage drawer. So it, they can be helpful because in good systems, you can probably put an alert that when a doctor prescribes drug X and it's not available, the alert will remind a doctor it's not available. But I think we also need to take the next step is maybe we can offer the alternative to that physician so that he or she can take the appropriate uh, measure. So, yes, there are good things. However, I don't think that because it's so complex, uh, I think we need that kind of a checklist that makes sure we hit every single component. Okay. Checklist. Lynn, that's your cue. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Frank Federico. And before him, Mike Cohen. So we're talking about drug shortages on WIHI. I'm Magic Kaplan. Great uh, panel here today. So a terrific illustration of proactivity under the best of times and worst of times, I suppose, is what's going on at WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina. Lynn Eschenbacher is helping to manage the situation of drug shortages day by day. So Lynn, kind of walk us through what you're doing at uh, WakeMed in hopes that uh, maybe others can kind of emulate and perhaps also uh, we can do some shared learning on that. Sounds great. I am happy to share any techniques or things that we've learned because that is my key message is the proactive, coordinated, organized approach. Um, we used to run into this. So about a year and a half ago when all this started kicking up, it would inevitably be a Friday afternoon, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and our buyer says, oh, by the way, we're out of this, and we're scrambling around. So, you know, we scrambled for a while. We came close to running out of things, and finally I said, we need a proactive approach. Um, we need, as I use the words, coordinated and organized. So about that time, um, we started meeting weekly with all the different entities in our health system. So we have four different hospitals or four different sites. Um, and so we started meeting together on a regular basis so that we could talk about who had what product and how we work as a team. Um, so we started meeting that. Well, it turned into, and as Madge has mentioned several times, the checklist. Um, we identified that we were talking through the same types of things at each meeting when we came up with a shortage. And so we wanted to develop a standardized checklist to make sure we weren't forgetting anything. Um, and so in that checklist has lots of different parts. Um, as many of you on the call know, there's lots of different ways to identify a shortage. Um, a big way we do it is with our buyer. So a lot of times my buyer will have placed an order and the order didn't come in. And prior to a year and a half ago, a lot of times my buyer would just try to manage that. Well, we found it very important that the second a drug didn't come in, she alerted the right people. Because if she sent out an email or um, didn't get to the right people, we might be delayed in taking action. So if your buyer, we even found that sometimes drug reps um, are able to share with us as well that they know something is going to be coming on shortage. Um, we use the FDA website, the ISMP, or the ASHP website. Um, we all use all the different websites so that we can keep um, up to speed on what shortages might be there. 
So once the shortage is identified, um, we switch into this checklist, which is shown on your screen. Um, and I see someone's asking about a copy of the checklist. I think, Madge, afterwards we're going to try to figure out a way yes. to get that out to folks, right? Right. So there is a PowerPoint slide. Lynn very nicely has some uh, good images here, although I realize the, t the print is kind of tiny. Yeah. Uh, uh, what Lynn's going to do, we just couldn't quite pull it off in, in time. We're going to create a URL for this, and we'll get that out to everyone who's on today's program. In the meantime, I, I think if you download the slide or ask for the slide deck from today's program at info at IHI.org, you'll at least be able to get some idea here. Thanks. Exactly. And um, exactly what Frank had mentioned before. First thing you start thinking about is how much do we have left? Um, Frank had mentioned, what's the duration? Well, if it looks like next week you're going to possibly get a shipment in, um, then maybe your plan's different. I know you guys are all thinking, most of the time the manufacturers have no idea. Well, you know, you do best with what the information you can get. If there's no release date, well, you start planning differently. And, you know, we rarely trust even the release dates that are mentioned. So we sort of plan for the worst because if we're pleasantly surprised, it's better for our patients. So, you know, we're more conservative. We react a little more because we don't want to run out of anything or um, have to use the gray market. Um, and so we really assess what do we have, where is it, how often are you using it, what other sites can you get it from. Then you really start looking at what are the clinical alternatives. Um, and so then the key part, as what's been mentioned before, is to involve the right individuals. If you're running out of X drug, who are the doctors who usually use that? What are the alternatives? As Frank mentioned also, elevating this to senior leadership. So when we were running low on propofol and even things such as Amicar, um, you know, Amicar might affect our cardiac surgeries or propofol or other surgeries. When we run into some of those drugs that are key drugs, we are immediately raising that up to our VPs, our um, COOs, our patient safety officers, our chief medical officers. We're involving those people so they're kept in the know. Um, and then um, we also, every morning at 845, we have a daily operational huddle, and it's where every discipline gets together and we talk more about patient flow, but I also take that opportunity to raise up um, with senior leadership there as well if we're having a shortage of something or we're managing something as well. Um, and so then after we're doing this checklist, um, it's important to communicate the information out. So when you're communicating the information, there's lots of different ways. One of the ways that we found successful is we've developed our own web page. We have something called SharePoint, and this is accessible by all the doctors, nurses, anyone in our health um, care organization. And what we did is we prioritized things if it's high, medium, or low, or resolved, and um, basically we list out the drugs the day the shortage starts, and then what can happen is if you click on on each one of those um, drugs, it actually explodes to individual information about that drug. And with each of our sites, we actually have an opportunity for each site to type in information about the shortage. So if you were a physician on the floor, and we don't have CPOE in all our places, so we're not able to give the up-to-date information there, but if you were trying to order something and you wanted to know if it was available, you could link to this website and see if it's on shortage or not or who the restrictions are in place for. Um, so that you'd know the information. 
So that was on the next slide is how that explodes open. Um, and you can see the example here is like neoprofen, and you can see the Raleigh response, carry north and apex. So you can see exactly um, what. And so like the neoprofen, we switched into methicin. Well, some of you on the call may know in the past two or three weeks, methicin has gone on shortage. So now we're managing neoprofen and methicin shortages. Um, but after that, as has been mentioned by several speakers as well, is getting the alternative information out. We found that it was extremely important to the physicians, like when we didn't have as much propofol and you have to start using some other agents, we know that there are some folks who haven't trained with alternative agents. And so we found that it was very important to send out about a one-page communication about those alternatives and what the dosing on that might be. So if you go to the next slide after that, um, oh, this is our weekly, so this is the link that anybody can get to, and if you go to the next one, this is like a one-page, um, this is the communication we would send out. So this one was, for example, about a year ago, we were actually on a shortage of Haldol, and what we did is we put out a chart of all the information of all the other anti-psychotics, um, anti-anxiety, um, all those agitation, we put out all those other drugs, just in case there was somebody who was not as familiar with dosing those. So the big key points are organized, proactive, um, work through a set list, and think safety, as has been mentioned. Um, like when we have the epinephrine shortage, we went to a third-party compounder at a much higher price, something to $15 and a pre-filled syringe, but we were concerned about the safety of in a code pulling up a, a vial, diluting a vial, and having to pull up individual syringes in a code. So there's times where we've really thought about the financial impact versus the safety and the accessibility, um, and we really have those true conversations to talk about sort of a mini FMEA of what is the risk-benefit of our decisions. Um, and so you, and then you've got to communicate, share the information, and do your best to make sure patients are well taken care of. Wow, that's terrific, Lynn. Thank you very much. Uh, you're just listening to Lynn Eschenbacher uh, from WakeMed in Raleigh, North Carolina. Very useful stuff. And thanks, everybody, for... Uh, you know, taking a peek at all these resources uh, that Lynn uh, put into a slide set, and we'll get a URL out to you as well. Um, I want to give, I'll go back to Mike here, I want to give you an opportunity if there's anything you'd like to comment in terms of Lynn's remarks uh, and, and ditto to Frank before we open things up for chat and, co and uh, just questions and comments. Uh, I keep alluding to the fact that the gray market issues are uh, another big elephant in the room here that folks are dealing with, perhaps that can come up in some of the questions. Mike, anything you'd like to say? Yeah, sure. First of all, that was absolutely outstanding, you know, to hear what WakeMed is doing. I've heard of a few other uh, health systems that have done something similar to that, but that, that really is outstanding. I love the checklist, by the way. I think everybody should take a look at that. The whole idea, of course, is being proactive, making people aware of the alternatives, as Lynn was saying. Um, and uh, as far as the I want me to comment now, Madra, a little bit about the gray market because we did a survey recently, and I yeah, know. Yeah, let's 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 do it quick. Let's do it just. Can you do sort of just a very quick uh, mention of the gray market, just because uh, I don't want to get us too off too far afield, ah. and then I'll open things up. Go ahead. It's an interest though of a lot of people for a lot of people though. Uh, it's a parallel market that runs. Uh, they're not the authorized distributors uh, of a manufacturer, uh, so they're they're kind of running parallel to the uh, regular market and. Um, they are 
basically legal. Um, and what they do is they really watch closely. They have folks inside that will watch closely for what um, might be in short supply. And then, of course, they either try to purchase the products so that they have a supply. They send out solicitations, which, by the way, that's another resource that you have to try to determine what might be going in the short supply if it hasn't hit you yet, and everybody's getting those things. Yeah. They, uh, or some of them actually don't have the supply of the drug. They wait until they get calls, and then they try to locate supplies around the country. And what has happened is sometimes there's a shortage in one area and not another area, uh, and so they actually do help to move uh, product around from one location or another. The big negative, of course, is the uh, the price. The pricing is... Uh, is incredibly high. Uh, we've seen increases uh, of as much as 2,000, 3,000, and in the premier study, 4,000%. So people are really uh, cautious about buying from them. And then you have the, uh, the downside, too, about the possibility of uh, counterfeit, uh, stolen drugs, uh, drugs obtained illicitly, which we know in a small percentage of cases does happen. And then the ethical decisions that we run into as well you know, um, faced with, um, you know, somebody that needs a critical drug and not being able to supply it, yet not knowing fully where the drug comes from and how it's been stored, it's not coming from your regular supplier, uh, you need to make a decision as to whether to purchase that or not. So in some of these situations, um, you know, that we've uh, heard about, you might even want to have your um, local ethicist uh, involved in the decision-making. So very interesting things have uh, cropped up during the past year. All right. Well, interesting is a... <laughs> Is a, is, a, is a very nice and diplomatic way to put it, boy. That's It's very p- powerful stuff. Thank you, Mike. Um, I'm going to have Frank uh, just make a, a comment or two, and then we're going to open things up for chat. And I, I do think it's a good question to put on the table about just really safe. I don't know if that sounds ridiculous, but safer and effective ways to deal with this gray market issue, which um, I, I think folks are pra- – that is a living, breathing issue that people have got to figure out how to manage. Frank? So uh, a couple of things, Madge. One, Mike mentioned the great market in general. Premier, the Performance Improvement Institute, came up with an estimate of an additional $200 million in cost to hospitals, and that's just switching to not gray market drugs, but just drugs. And then there are the hidden costs, or uh, these are actually not hidden, but maybe need to be calculated. Uh, The AHA survey, I think, estimated over $200 million in additional resources for a hospital. Our colleague in the U.K. estimated about 3 million pounds in extra costs at his hospital. The other cost that's really hidden is what does it mean for patients? Do they have to go to different clinics where the supplies are available? Um, there was a recent story, I think it was on NPR, that talked about patients who had to travel a great distance to continue to get the cancer treatment that they needed. And we haven't even talked about those costs. So there are many, many issues that we need to deal with. Um, also want to comment that there are many folks working on a national scale trying to figure this out. Mike is one of the leaders. Uh, Bona Benjamin, who's not with us but was one of the co-authors, I also want to recognize her for her leadership with the American Society of Health System Pharmacists because, again, she has been um, just a champion in trying to help address this issue. Okay. Thank you very much, Frank. Okay. Uh, lots um, – I'm, I'm even sitting on my hands with a bunch of questions, but I'm going to – because I'm the host, I have to turn things over now to, to all of you. 
we'll we'll go right uh, right to the first person who got in there, Mike. Uh, thanks for your question. Mike was wondering. He's asking Mike. Mike has a question for Mike Cohen. Uh, has anything been done to block companies uh, from purchasing from wholesalers and the manufacturers? And this is pertaining uh, to the gray market issues. Mike Cohen. Well, no, not not yet. But um, you know, there, there's uh, there was federal law that was passed in the 1980s that actually called for a national pedigree law which never happened. It was left up to the states. But recently, FDA published something in the Federal Register, so they're active again in looking at this. It was incumbent upon FDA to work with it, but it just never happened. Um, and recently, they, uh, you know, there were some injunctions against FDA doing it, and that's why it didn't happen. But uh, I think we're going to see it. It is one of the issues that's come up recently in the discourse about the gray market and about uh, the drug shortage. And so uh, I think we are going to see a national pedigree law, which would require the tracking of the drug from the last authorized distributor all the way up until the receipt by the uh, hospital or organization that's actually using it. We have seen as many of six and seven touches in between the time the drug was manufactured and finally got to the user. And some of these have been independent community pharmacies. They've been IV compounding pharmacies and so on that uh, may or may not have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, legally uh, distributing the drug or, or reselling the drug. So it is absolutely a concern. Okay. Thanks, uh, Michael Cohen uh, from the Institute for Safe Medication Practices. Quick question for Lynn. Maybe it's quick. Who maintains your SharePoint site and how frequently is it updated? That should be a quick answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it really is. Um, we actually, when we're in our weekly meeting, um, our buyer um, usually has the SharePoint site open and is updating it there. Or as she is preparing for our weekly meetings and she's getting the counts, um, either updates it right before or right after. So, um, and we there's a buyer at the Cary campus too. So um, the different because there's the four different sections, so different people at the different um, sites can update as well. So we just try to do it real time. We don't want it to be extra work on anyone. We try to do it in the moment when we're having the meeting. Okay. Thanks a lot, Lynn. Uh, Thomas Young has asked, what are the best forms for physicians to discuss alternative therapies, uh, alternate drugs? Uh, maybe that's a question um, I, I'll toss to you, Frank, if you have any sense of that, and also to Lynn. Well, I'll start. I guess, you know, one is the specialty areas that uh, clearly if you're doing oncology and uh, that group could be talking about, if you're talking about anesthesia, the anesthesia forums that are available at uh, each of the hospitals where in the morning there could be a meeting or a huddle with the team to say there's a shortage of drug X, how will we handle it? Um, those are some of the obvious ones. Uh, I'll turn it over to Lynn who has much more underground experience. Yeah, Lynn, uh, I'm curious whether or not uh, you're, you're aware that even any of the specialty societies or any of the uh, professional organizations are even developing uh, kind of forums, um, daily or weekly forums for discussing this? No, but I think Dr. Young has got a great question um, because uh, there's probably sounds like a strong need to have that. Through like ASHP, we have listservs. And so the American Society Health System Pharmacists, so we post things out there, pharmacist to pharmacist to ask. Um, but I, I, and I was believing he was looking at more of a national level to talk about it, um, whether rather than just within the hospital, because within the hospital, I think different people manage it. Um, but nationally, maybe that's something IHI could help coordinate some kind of a 
uh, networking or some place that people could ask those questions and discuss. Sounds really, really interesting. Thank you uh, for that. Okay, well, uh, brought up a good issue there, uh, Thomas Young. Uh, Mike, quick question for you. Where is the law that requires early communication by manufacturers about shortages? That is the Senate bill, I believe. Um, I don't know if there's, I can't remember if there's a House version as well. Where does that stand right now? Well, actually, tomorrow there's a hearing in the uh-huh. House, the uh, uh, Energy and Commerce Committee, and certainly that's going to come up there. There's a bill in the Senate, of course, from Senators Klobuchar and, uh, or I'm sorry, Koblucar and uh, uh, Casey in Pennsylvania, and there was already a hearing on the supply chain where the drug shortage issues were brought up. So there's uh, work being done in both uh, uh, halls of Congress, and uh, you know um, we know that um, there's going to be more partners coming on, more co-signers of the bill, um, and uh, I think we're going to have some legislation that would you know, basically force the drug companies to report to FDA uh, when they're they're making a decision to stop a drug, which should give FDA some time to work with other manufacturers or maybe even convince the original manufacturer, which has been done on occasion. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Tracy has a good question, um, which has to do with, uh, on average, how much of a pharmacist's time uh, is now being taken up per week to handle the shortage situation. Uh, she refers to that as something that one might take to one's administration. I think you're talking about the administration. <laughs> I don't know if you're talking about the current presidential administration, but <laughs> at all levels here. But Lynn, let me uh, ask you. Sure. Um, I don't think, you know, I was thinking, gosh, that might be an interesting publication, you know, to have people actually track the number of hours. But I I have not actually kept a log. But, you know, I can have a week where it's the one hour just in the meeting um, versus up to two or three days where it's eight hours a day where basically I'm doing nothing but managing the shortage. I think when the erythropoietin one happened um, and we, I mean, we only were down to about one vial size and only maybe 50 vials left in the whole hospital for all of our patients. Um, I was spending multiple days working on alternatives. So um, I have not kept a log. Um, I'd be interested, I guess, if anybody has kept a log, um, but it can be anywhere from an hour to 24 or more, 48 hours in a week. Thanks, Mike, this is Frank Federico. I know you did a survey of a number of hospitals. Did you ask that question? Were you looking for the amount of time that people were investing in uh, dealing with and the drug shortages? Yes, and there was something like 80% of the respondents gave us feedback about the uh, excessive amount of time it's taking. Some said they actually have employed, and I guess it's the larger health systems, uh, full-time equivalent uh, position just to manage these drug shortages that are occurring. I wanted to mention, by the way, uh, people may be aware, may not, uh, on Monday, this coming Monday, FDA is holding a uh, public meeting on the drug shortage, so you're going to hear more about that. And then just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Secretary Sebelius at HHS uh, and others uh, from uh, HHS agencies like FDA, the commissioner was there from FDA, huh? uh, Peggy Hamburg, and uh, they actually um, met with a number of organizations that uh, may impact uh, the drug shortage, uh, um, and uh, that included pharmaceutical industry, uh, the generic and uh, pharma industry, the bio industry as well, and then many of the uh, professional organizations and safety organizations as well. It was a very good meeting. I happened to be there and absolutely uh, sincere in uh, you know, doing something about this. And uh, you know, uh, I'm, so I'm hopeful, at least. 
Thanks, uh, Mike. I'm going to lob in a question, and it really alludes back to the one of the early remarks you made about pharmacists um, compounding uh, some of these drugs themselves uh, as one way to deal with the shortage. And I guess I wanted maybe um, ask you about, you know, if if that really is a growing phenomenon, and sort of how we might begin to track and and have a sense of of best practices there, whether it's the pharmacists or pharmacy within in the hospital system or outside? Maybe, Frank, you might say something about that, too. Are, are yeah, it is a real concern for us, and, uh, you know, we've brought this up a few times, including the meeting with Secretary Sebelius, because it is happening. It's probably a growing trend. Just the other uh, week we had a call from a major university uh, hospital that was unable to get fluorouracil, and uh, they had decided that they were going to buy the uh, pharmaceutical ingredients for that and, you know, make their own injectable. And, you know, that's fine, um, certainly capable of doing that, but, you know, let's face it, our compounding pharmacies, our hospital pharmacies, generally do not have the same level of um, quality control as a uh, manufacturer that is um, required to uh, have good manufacturing practices, current good manufacturing practices in place where, you know, when they're batching items, for example, they have to do sterility testing, they have to give quality control information back to the federal agency. That's not happening in a lot of these cases. And you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the results uh, of that with, uh, even though it wasn't a drug in shortage, uh, Avastin, uh, which, uh, of course, has been used uh, for breast cancer and other uses as well, but is also injected into the uh, intraocularly for uh, wet macular degeneration. And uh, unfortunately, there were three different locations that uh, the supply became contaminated during the manufacturing practice, and a number of patients were uh, blinded. Uh, originally written about that back in Tennessee, uh, and the Tennessee Department of Health right. uh, did a story on that and uh, followed up on that back in April. Thanks, Mike. Lynn, uh, if you want to comment on that in terms of anything that you're aware of, and also um, uh, some, there's an additional question uh, for you from Mark Miller. Any, any thoughts, first of all, on sort of uh, c- compounding either within the system or outside? Sure. Uh, we're the same. We have not used the gray market, um, and we try, uh, and, and compounding, like like even things like the heparin bags, we were on pre-mixed heparin bag shortage, and we were trying to do whatever we could not to manufacture those as well, even though, you know, taking a saline bag or whatever and putting heparin in it is very easy. We know the bigger picture of if you accidentally pull up the wrong amount or things like that, that could be detrimental. So um, there are times where we gone to third-party compounding um, sites that do do this professionally um, just because we were concerned about the safety issues. So um, we have done that. Now, to answer the question, um, who has the... Sure. Who has the final authority to make the change to an alternative agent if performing a therapeutic interchange? Is it left to the Department of Pharmacy or a lead physician or PNT? And so what we actually do is we involve the key physicians in the decision-making, but the ultimate final approval is by the PNT chairs. 
Okay. So, All right. Thank you. And a lot of times we're calling the PNT chair. We're sending them the memo. So they take a look at it and then give us the blessing. All right. So I may be the only one in this program who doesn't know what P&T <laughs> references. What does that mean? I apologize. It's the pharmacy and therapeutics. Okay. It's the combination group between the physicians and the nurses and pharmacists within the organization that determines the formulary. Okay. Um, so they are basically the um, sort of the medical, it leads up to the medical sca- staff committee for formulary decisions. All right. No, that's fine. Thank you very much. Uh, Lauren has a question about whether drug shortages are affecting clinical trials. Um, I don't, I'm not sure we, you know, can cover that adequately, certainly on this program. Mike, any knowledge of that? No, you know, it's not something we have focused on, but that did show up in our survey uh, that we did in uh, September of 2010. So uh, I'm sure that is happening. You can't really uh, switch drugs very easily when you're doing clinical trials. So, uh, you know, that, that would be a problem. Thank you. Um, I want to mention, I don't know, I can't remember of the three of you, which one was uh, made a, 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 an allusion to some other good practices that might be going on in some other organizations uh, as we uh, try and kind of learn from the best. Ohio Health, I think University of North Carolina, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center were some of the ones that I had written down. Uh, Frank, any thoughts about, uh, in addition to our wonderful example here from Wake Med, uh, where else we might learn about best practices? There was um, I, I witnessed when I was at uh, visiting Cincinnati, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center that in the morning they have a, um, a meeting of all the nurse managers who talk about what are the issues of the day, et cetera, just sort of a morning huddle, followed then by the department director's huddle. And as I was listening in, one of the uh, topics was that there was a drug shortage. So immediately they had a plan to ensure that all the other department heads knew that the pharmacy was facing a drug shortage, the hospital would not have a drug, and they offered what the alternate plan was. So I thought it was a great way to communicate so that at all levels of the organization they were hearing what the issues are involved. Okay, sounds good. And, you know, one of the things we always hope with the WIHI is that we can at least shine the light on some of the broad issues and your everyone's questions and even some of the issues that are arising today give us some ideas about some resources and ways that we can be helpful in joining with ISMP and some of the others in making sure people have the latest information. So we'll, we'll think a little bit about that via our own website. Um, I want to ask, uh, Frank, I guess this is kind of a, one of these existential questions, but are we entering into a period, even with some of the things that might be done at the federal level to try and weigh in here, um, are we into kind of a new normal here, or are we uh, a sort of slow-moving mo- crisis, and in some sense practices are going to have to be developed with this as an assumption, uh, drug shortages? I hope that's not too big and global. Yeah, uh, well, I hope not. I, I think you know when we think about what's happened today, it's that the system is perfectly designed to work this way. There are generics that are now so low in cost and value that companies are just bailing out because there's no, they can't make money on them. Uh, there are issues around manufacturing, and I think that what was what's going on now at Washington, with the help of Mike and others, is rethinking what should the manufacturing process be. What are the quality controls that need to be put in place so we can 
design a system that prevents these kinds of things from happening in the future. Um, is it wishful thinking? Well, you know, I think we're a capitalist society, so if we can find a way to make money on it, somebody will will do it. Somebody will the companies will stay in business and they'll make the products. But there's also going to be some legal requirement because these companies also produce drugs that do make money, and part of the payoff ought to be are we also producing those low cost generics that we have guaranteed to be on the market and will continue to produce. Okay, thanks. Um, Lynn or Mike, do either of you want to weigh in on that? Feel free. Yeah, you know, many of us uh, are aware that uh, Ezekiel Emanuel wrote an uh, editorial in the New York Times a few weeks back, actually a couple months ago, I guess by now, and pointed out that, uh, you know, people are really constrained in the industry as far as uh, raising the price. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, you would think that the law of supply and demand would be working here and that you could just, as a manufacturer, increase a drug cost so that it's uh, profitable. But actually, there's a federal law which prohibits that, um, and it's uh, related to Medicare, and it only allows you to raise the price 6% every six months. And uh, that has been a real constraint, I think, on uh, on issues. And we're trying to find out more about that to uh, learn how much that impacts uh, according to Emmanuel, it seemed to be pretty significant, especially in the area of cancer chemotherapy. So that's an issue. Yeah, may I just mention one other thing? Sure. Uh, I think too, is report errors to one of the uh, uh, PSOs, whether it's uh, you know us or uh, your own PSO or whatever. Let's get the flow of information uh, cycling so that uh, when there is an issue, uh, information can reach you much more rapidly about a specific problem that's occurring, um, you know, so that you can take steps. I think that's an important thing, too, for protecting our patients. So uh, please do keep that in mind. And, you know, all of us that work in PSOs will work hard to uh, uh, return the information as uh, widely as we can so that people can benefit from that. But do consider that, and it's federally protected, or it's uh, legally protected uh, if you send it to any of the PSOs or FDA's uh, MedWatch program. That's also protected under statute. So you really shouldn't be concerned about, uh, you know, your lawyer shouldn't be concerned, rather, and it must be kept confidential for, by any of the PSOs or FDA. Okay, thanks, Mike. I just want to make a very, very quick mention, uh, partly because there's a deadline coming up of Friday, September 30th, where you can get a little bit of a break off the registration fee for IHI's upcoming 23rd Annual National Forum on Quality Improvement in Healthcare. I mention it because there are going to be several in-depth sessions uh, related to medication safety uh, at the forum, and I think this will provide yet another uh, opportunity for people to do some very, very critical networking and share latest information. So consider that. Uh, that's uh, December. Where are my dates here? Oh, I don't even have the dates here. Uh, there they are. <laughs> December 4th through 7th. I knew that. Okay. (laughs) I was looking at the wrong thing. December 4th through 7th. Um, I guess I want to just ask a sort of a leave on, I don't know if we can leave on a high note or not. This is sobering stuff, but proactivity, Lynn, uh, we could hear it in your voice, a sense of, you know, we just got to kind of roll up our sleeves and and deal with this thing. But um, maybe I'll I'll, uh, just ask you and uh, Frank, and we'll go around the horn very, very quickly here as we wrap up, what role might patients and families play 
in all of this. So a lot of the media coverage have presented some pretty heart-wrenching stories about folks in treatment uh, facing this situation, uh, practically blindsided, it seems, almost uh, by what's going on, and as if dealing with whatever medical condition wasn't enough, suddenly the treatment not being available. So any thoughts on that? Uh, it's an important dimension to this. We always want to have patients and families' ideas as well as their ability to also navigate with us. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I know IHI has talked a lot about, like, healthcare literacy, even being able to speak the language. So we all know that it's a very cumbersome system. So just understanding diagnosis is difficult. Nonetheless, you're told you they don't have the drug. Um, as with anything, I'd say be an advocate. And a- if you ask once and they say no, keep asking because, um, you know, what we should advocate to our, par- our patients is that just because the drug may not be here today, there may be um, ways that we can, like we do, get it, you know, move it from one of our other sites to another site. So I think just being proactive for your family members and um, helping them be aware of um, ways that they might be able to ask the right questions. Okay. Thanks, Lynn. Frank, any thoughts on that? Yeah, Madge, I would add that on a higher level, I think that uh, since there's legislation, that there are legislators who would like to know how the public is feeling about this, that it would not hurt to write to them and let them become aware of how serious this problem is. And as Mike said, there are things that can be done at the national level, but we need to stimulate that legislation. Okay, very, very good. Mike, uh, you've given us so much uh, useful grounding and lots of ways to keep tracking this. Any uh, parting words uh, from you? As, as we wrap up? Um, I think we covered a lot, actually. Yes, uh, we, <laughs> we did. Me to okay. And yeah. it and, All right. Well, uh, I, folks, take advantage uh, of these resources and many more. Uh, Vicki Minden puts together a nice resource document. Uh, we'll revisit this topic on WIHI and in some other ways. And as promised, we will get a link out to you with uh, some of the slides that uh, Lynn Eschenbacher uh, shared. So thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Frank. Uh, really couldn't have done this without you. Every WIHI has wonderful preparation in advance, and this was no exception. Uh, I just want to tell you that next up on WIHI on October 5th, we're going to be looking looking at family caregiving, caregivers, and compassion. Uh, a really fantastic uh, group of people, Arthur Kleinman, uh, two leading uh, medical people from North Shore, Long Island, Jewish, and IHI's own Andrea Capsinol. So the webpage is now live on that. You can enroll right away if you'd like. Uh, again, a reminder uh, that if you check out the, um, IHI.org tomorrow, you'll find an audio file of this uh, program today, the resource document, and you can also find it on iTunes. And And I want you to remember that when you log off the WebEx, it will ask you if you want to download the chat and any slides. So please say uh, if you'd like to so you have that information. And if you weren't on the computer but on the phone, email info at IHI.org. The people who make this program possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Kristen Shearer. And then we have some nice music that opens and closes the program, the original arrangement by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Safasoa on piano. It is my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>